0: Well, it's that time for us to uh, dig into the Word, so if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, find your way to chapter 3 and um, hold on tight for uh, another uh, uh, time in God's Word, very exciting time. I want to say that um, our study this morning brings us into that aspect of theology that many Christians are sadly unfamiliar with, and I'm talking about the sovereignty of God. It's not only an important part of how we understand God himself, the Bible emphasizes it. Now sovereignty uh, is too vast a subject for us to handle comprehensively in just this hour of our worship, but that's really not our goal anyway. Um, We're just focusing on part of it to see how it affects our evangelism. Maybe that's an interesting thought to you. Affects our evangelism. More on that in a, uh, just a bit. First, let's define our terms. God's sovereignty includes the ability to determine what should happen in life and, and, and the power actually to bring it about. That's really what I mean by God's sovereignty. It's a very simple definition That is, he determines what should happen and how, when, where, and why. He operates, you might say, by divine appointments. The Bible is replete with examples of this. Let me give you a few examples. In John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus about a certain blind man that they encountered, wanting to know if his blindness was caused by his own sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus told him in verse 3, Neither, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God saw to it that this man was born this way, so that at an appropriate time Jesus could heal him to the glory of the Father. On another occasion, when Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Judea to Galilee, we read in John 4 that it was necessary that they go through Samaria. It's really out of the way. And as you read this chapter, you learn why. Jesus had an appointment with a certain woman at a certain well at a certain time of the day so that he could give her certain words, that is, the words of eternal life. In another instance Saul the Pharisee left for Damascus in hopes of persecuting Christians there but God had other plans for Saul and on that journey he had an encounter with Jesus himself divine appointments they're everywhere in scripture just at the right time God sent his son into the world the time that many uh, that time ta- the times that many tried to kill Jesus Uh, when it was not his time, we see Jesus mysteriously slipping through their grasp. Later, when it was his time to die, he himself laid down his own life. And Jesus rose from the dead three days later, as he said he would. Now, God's sovereignty displayed in these divine appointments are not there just to fascinate us. They uh, they embolden us, they encourage us in times, in the, in the times that the, wor- in the to the world's eyes seem very much out of control and chaotic, such as they do right now in our country. And they comfort us. They comfort us a great deal. God will keep his promise to us and return to take us to where he is now. That's a promise. More than this, God's sovereign work in human history and how it affects people is an important part of the gospel message. You never know that by the way that the gospel is proclaimed today. It's so anemic. It's lacking all the proper elements. Most hear a truncated version, but that will prove only to be powerless and misleading. You might wonder, well, where does sovereignty come in the gospel? And and why would I bring it up anyway? Wouldn't that just confuse people? In fact, I'm confused enough about it. And and how am I supposed to introduce it? Well, take your Bibles, as I say, turn to uh, Ecclesiastes 3, look there, and let me show you how the sage does this. The entire chapter itself is one complete thought with a central message. The central message is this, everything is in God's hands. He has sovereignly determined all things. Now we zero in on just the first uh, eight verses because they are a fitting way to prepare the sages' audience for what comes after in this chapter, which we'll look at next time. So to be more precise, the sage wants to establish a biblical worldview for those worldly skeptics out there as a proper context for a saving message, wants to develop a biblical worldview in their minds. Now, by the way, if you haven't noticed yet that the, evangelist, the evangelistic nature of the book of Ecclesiastes, then, then you haven't been paying attention It's shaping up to be a great evangelistic treatise, isn't it? You could say that it's the track of the Old Testament. I know that's putting it rather simply, but I think you know what I mean. The sage is educating his audience about how the importance of living life within a personal covenant relationship with God is absolutely necessary. Only in that context does everything we do in life matter. Is there lasting gain, enduring satisfaction and joy only in that relationship, that covenant relationship? And to, to bring that wonderful and hopeful truth out and make it attractive, he's been framing his discussions in such a way that really shows the utter futility of living a life outside of that covenant relationship with God. In other words, he paints a black background of futility, so that when it comes time to to put that white paint spot of hope in the middle of it, it will be unmistakable. Isn't this what we do when we evangelize? Paul told Titus uh, how the saints are to, in every way, make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. But today many paint a light and cheery background. You know, God loves you, Christ died for you, God gives God invites you to come and and enjoy his heaven with him. And while those are all true, they're really sort of out of context. And if you place a white spot on a canvas that's white, well then the spot loses its distinctiveness. So in our evangelism, we demonstrate just how vital God's way is to the meaning of life by presenting it against the backdrop of futility of life. And this is what the sage does in miniature here in chapter 3. So again, let let me show you. Up to this point, as you know, if you've been following along with us these many weeks, the sage's honest and wise search for lasting gain in hedonism, in wise human epistemology and accumulated wealth at the end of life has left him absolutely empty and empty handed. Everything is fleeting and futile. Now in this chapter, he introduces some theology into this very bleak backdrop to make it just a little more bleak. Specifically, he informs his audience that life under the sun really operates by the sovereign will of God who rules it and dispenses his perfect will for the ages from above the sun. God's sovereign rule underlies everything that takes place under the sun, even what might seem to be random. Even that's planned. Those haphazard moments in life, God actually Strategically place them there. According to verse 1, God appoints everything. Look there at verse 1. There isn't an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under the sun. Now, there is one Hebrew word that our English Bibles have translated appointed time. It occurs only three times in the Hebrew Bible, only three, in Nehemiah, in Esther, and here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In all three instances, the reference is to a designated time, right? Time that's been designated, that's been appointed. Nehemiah set a time for his work. The Jews in Esther, well, they established an annual celebration for the nation to be on a certain day in their religious calendar. In Ecclesiastes, the sage says that everything has an appointed time. But while the first two references reveal the one doing the designating, Nehemiah in one and the Jews in the other, the sage's reference doesn't. He doesn't tell us who's doing the appointing. So who is? Well, if you let your eye fall down to verse 11, you find the answer. God has made everything appropriate in its time. There it is. God has determined time, and more specifically, everything in its time, all events in history. To put it in other words, God has determined the end from the beginning and everything in between. And that's quite a bold statement. He has ordained the activity of every person in human history, saved and unsaved, to the minutest detail without interfering, of course, with anyone's will to act. And by that I mean everyone is responsible for his and her own actions, even though God has decreed them from all eternity. For example, people sin, but God doesn't cause them to sin, nor does he tempt anybody to sin. But it is part of his perfect plan. I'll explain that in a little bit more detail in just a few moments. What comes next, though, are verses 2 through 8. And these are examples of God's divine appointments, really on a general scale. All right, And the sage is very clever in the way that he lays out these appointments. He uses what grammarians call merisms. Merisms, something you probably want to commit to memory. We'll see it a lot. Um, It's just a figure of speech that uses two contrasting parts of a whole to refer to the whole, all right? Um, You might, uh, and and you actually use this figure all the time without perhaps even realizing it. You might say, well, I searched day and night, which means that you searched all day, not just in the morning, not just in the evening, but every time in between. That's a merism. The psalmist says to God, you discern my going out and my lying down, by which he means, you know everything I do from the moment I get out of bed to the moment I go to bed, as he makes clear in the next line, you are familiar with all my ways. (laughs) Now there are several merisms in this poem, uh, and the sage devotes two lines to each one, so let's, let's examine them. Verse 2 says this, a time to give birth and a time to die. Now, notice two, two contrasting acts, right? One gives life, the other forfeits it. Women who give life eventually will give up theirs, right? The second line reinforces this idea, a time to plant and a time to uproot what's planted. I think that's simple enough As with verse 2, so with the rest of these verses. There are parallels in each that emphasize this one idea by its contrasting parts. So in verse 3, we have a time to kill and a time to heal. One act takes away life while the other sustains it. And the idea is reinforced in the second line, a time to tear down and a time to build up. In verse 4, the sage takes us from joy to sorrow, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So notice, weep in the first line is parallel to mourning in the second, and laughing and dancing are parallel. Verse 5, well, verse 5 is rather difficult to interpret, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. What in the world does that mean? Um, There have been a lot of suggestions by commentators. It uh, it may very well have been an idiom for something back then. Um, But if we follow the pattern of parallelism that we see in these verses, then the second line gives us some clarification, or at least some idea. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. So throwing stones is parallel to embracing, which might catch you a bit off guard since we have similar expressions in English that actually refer to acts of violence, right? We don't throw stones in glass houses, or sticks and stones may break my bones. But here, throwing stones has a positive idea. It's the gathering of stones that's negative since it's parallel to shunning, embracing. Now, rather than guess at something exact, I think it's safer just to understand that the entire verse is talking about really a time to unite and a time to disband. Time to unite and a time to disband. Verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up as lost. Well, that seems to be a specific example, actually, of what comes in the second line. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Both lines preserve the idea of sticking to something and then abandoning something. Again, two contrasting sides of the whole to represent the whole. In verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, that has to do, I think, with communication and relationships. Why do I say that? Well, the second line shows this to some degree. A time to be silent and a time to speak. If we were to follow the same pattern of parallelism, where the first reference in both lines are parallel and the second reference in both lines are parallel, well then being silent and tearing apart go together. Speaking up and building up would go together. So perhaps then the sage is referring to times we, when we ignore something in a relationship, when we really should speak up. In which case, keeping silent hinders good communication and only makes matters worse, and speaking up would enhance good communication and resolve issues. Now the final verse actually reverses this pattern of parallelism that's preserved in the last six. We know this because the subject matter tells us a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Obviously, love goes not with war, but with peace, and hate with war. Uh, we, uh, We can't be certain why the sage reverses the parallelism in this verse. It could just be a stylistic difference. Now, as I say, these are contrasting parts of realities in life. But not all of them represent moral realities. Okay? They're not necessarily have to do with moral decisions since many of these extremes could be either moral or immoral giving the, the 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 context or the or the situation those that we might interpret in a moral context however god has ordained to happen just as much as the others but he doesn't necessarily delight in them what do i mean by that well god God has ordained uh, everything, and certain things that he has ordained are evil, or to come about are evil, um, or wicked, or um, hate, for example. Hate's a good example. It's parallel to war. It's not something, um, and war is not something, of course, that um, is considered sin in certain contexts, but hate, hate is certainly a sin. Uh, and it is uh, a sin where, uh, where where it displeases God. God calls hate uh, a sin. He calls us to love our neighbor, not to hate our neighbor. So it would be fair to say that God is not pleased with our uh, with with any kind of murderous thoughts that we have, any hate at all. God is not pleased with that. He's not pleased with our silence either, when we should be speaking the truth in love. Furthermore. Death also grieves God to some. in some sense. The Bible says that he is pleased with the death of his saints, and that's because death of Christians signify the completion of their course and a time now to experience joy to its fullness in his presence. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel says. He desires that they repent. That God would ordain then unregenerate people throughout human history who practice hate, who ruin relationships, and die in their sins is not something that he delights in. But it is something that he determined to be vital in his overall plan for the ages. You might be finding this rather deep. Uh, But uh, hang in there. That's a truth, I think, that is, yes, hard for some to accept, much less understand, even for Christians. How can God ordain something that he himself doesn't like or desire? But we do this all the time in our own lives, just to a smaller scale. A father lets his irresponsible son become destitute, until he cries out for help and shows that he really means business about changing his ways. Years later, the same father says to his now successful son, Billy, I hated to put you through that, but it was for your own good and the only way that you would turn around from such a destructive path. Or a coach might take his track team and make them run on Saturdays, their days off, in all kinds of terrain and harsh weather. And on race day, when his team wins, he tells his understudy, his assistant coach, you know, I don't like to make my runners go through such a terrible ordeal while they're training, but it's necessary if they will be in the right frame of mind for a race. So for very good reasons, God has ordained everything in its time even though some of it will grieve him. But most importantly, these merisms in verses 2 to 8 represent God-ordained realities of life that will happen. They will happen, no question about it. They have been ever since the dawn of history. What is inescapable is that we all live between these contrasting parts of realities of life. We're all there. We have no choice. A person has no say in his birth, nor can he avoid his death. You might not be the kind of person who wears her emotions on her sleeve, but you are somewhere between laughing and crying because that is how God has ordained life to be. Your actions may not kill anyone or they may not save anyone from dying. But they may not, and they may not bring unity to a situation or cause its breakup, but they will contribute to some degree to one end or the other of these realities. Because God has ordained them to be, and you live in them. No escaping. You cannot live outside of what God has ordained. If you give up on something, or maybe you hang in there, that's part of the reality of life that God has ordained as well. Now, you say, well, this is all very interesting, but what's the point? Okay. Sage develops, you see, a biblical worldview for his audience. That's what he's doing before he can give them a bit of good news. Here's what what he's really saying. Two two major things he's really saying with, with this poem. First, he says, look, God is your context in life. God is the context in life. And this is one of the hardest facts about life for many unbelievers because they're not aware of it and, and in most cases, they couldn't care less about it. But we need them to see it. You can't escape God. He's everywhere, behind everything that happens in human history, both on an individual level as well as on a global level. He has appointed times and seasons and events, including human activity with a particular purpose. These boundaries are set. No one can escape them. They are bound to live somewhere in between them. Every person lives within them. They define life. The second thing that the sage, I think, wants his audience to know is that every person in the world who has ever lived, who is alive now and who will ever live, is subject to these limitations that God has sovereignly built into the fabric of life. They're subject to them. God has ordained this fallen world to run according to his will and everyone is subject to its limitations. Remember, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is missing cannot be counted, no matter how you try. And it was in this context that he said, again, in, um, in, in verse 13 of that chapter, it is a sorry task with which God has given the sons of mankind to be troubled. According to that verse, God has tasked people under the sun who are outside of this covenant relationship with him to a sorry, troublesome search for lasting gain and satisfaction that they'll never find. Because he has designed the search to fail. And God ordained the failure as part of the consequences of the fall. You will search, but you will not find. You will thirst, but you will not be satisfied. You will hunger, but you will not be filled. Then, then the sage turns the tables. Back in chapter 2, you may remember last time we looked at verses 25 and 26. Here's the white spot of hope that he paints right in the middle of the backdrop of black futility. Here it is. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner... To the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too, the sage says, you've got to admit, if you are a sane thinking person, is absolute futility in striving after the wind. This is very eye-opening. Here is a clear distinction between those under the sun who know God personally and those who don't. Those who have received from God godly wisdom that is founded on special revelation that when applied will cultivate joy that comes with this personal covenant relationship. And this positive theological word, this white spot of hope that he paints against the backdrop of ordained futility is the gospel. Jesus would later rephrase the sages' words here and say, if you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again. I am the bread of life. And that when those who trust me seek, they will find. On the other hand, those who have no relationship with God are once again sovereignly ordained to struggle with the way that God has structured life. Refusing to accept divine appointments as means that God uses to goad them to eternal life. They kick against them. But as Paul discovered when he was an unbeliever, it's hard to kick against the goats that God has ordained. Can you see how this poem becomes a vital part of the sages' evangelistic approach to to those skeptics living under the sun without God in their lives? It's what we've, we've argued from Ecclesiastes all along, but here is an extended word, and I hope it's clear. Yes, it's clear, you're saying, but is it right? How do we know it's right? I'm glad you asked. We always confirm our Old Testament principles by the New Testament. Again, progressive revelation. Uh, and so we turn to the New Testament and we ask this question. Is, is it true that the sage develops a biblical worldview in order to condition his audience to receive a prophetic word made more sure to which they would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in their heart? quoting Peter. Yes, it's true. And it's right. And we know it's right. To ask it another way, is it necessary? No, really, is it necessary for me to develop a biblical worldview that highlights God's sovereign appointments for an unbeliever that I want to give the gospel to? That's a fair question. Yes. If that unbeliever is biblically illiterate, You must. Otherwise, he won't understand a word you're saying. Find your way to Acts 17. In Acts 17, we have a display of what I'm talking about. We heard this read very ably uh, in our scripture reading. Here the Apostle Paul is preaching in Athens, and some Greek philosophers who heard him preaching in the marketplace brought him to the famed Areopagus, the home of the Greek council, because they found his message so intriguing, and they wanted well they wanted to know more. Look at verses 19 and 20, Acts 17. May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For for you're you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Oh, what a great question that is. Now, you need to understand that this Areopagus crowd, they were very different than Paul's Jewish audience. How so? Well, the Jews were biblically literate. They had access to the Torah. They grew up... Uh, with the Torah. They were catechized by the rabbis in the Torah. When Paul reasoned with these folks, he proved from the Torah that the long-awaited Messiah that the prophets foretold had to die and rise from the dead, something that they flatly denied. He wrestled with them over the correct interpretations of Old Testament messianic passages, for sure. Eventually, Claiming Jesus as the Messiah because God confirmed Jesus' claims and his teaching through miracles. You see, the Old Testament, and the Jews would have known this, the Old Testament way of validating a legitimate prophet was by his miracles and signs. They came true, you better listen to them. Peter said as much in his sermon at Pentecost to three Thousand Jews, Do you remember, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which you which he performed, uh, which he performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Mm-hmm. Now, with this kind of biblically literate crowd, Paul didn't have to really lay much groundwork down. Mm-hmm. They were well acquainted with the scriptures. They just. He just needed to help the Jews see the true meaning of the Old Testament first and then plug Jesus into that correct understanding. Alright, well we take this approach with any cult or religion that uses the Bible as a significant part of its belief system. If you evangelize Catholics for example, start with the Ten Commandments which they know and believe and accept. But now 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 Paul has to evangelize Gentiles. People who grew up without any kind of of knowledge about the Hebrew Bible had never seen the inside of a synagogue or the temple. They didn't know who Adam and Eve were, the patriarchs, David, the prophets. They were steeped in pagan religion, most of which was religiously pluralistic. You know, many gods, many ways... So, where do you begin with people like this who don't even, who are not even on the same playing field as you? Would you think that they would understand for a moment the short elements of the gospel that you could deliver in three minutes? You have to start by educating them about who God is, what He's like, how He acts, and why. You also want to introduce them to a biblical anthropology that explains human nature. And that would allow you eventually to talk about the universal problem of sin that was introduced by one man from whom we all descended, and then God's remedy in the acts of another man whom God sent, namely Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. This is how Paul did it with the Gentiles, every time. And the Areopagus address is the classic text for showing how it's done. So let me take you through this very quickly. This is a quick sketch. He first finds a way into their world, and it's very clever. He says, beginning at verse 22, Men of Athens... I see that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Wow, isn't that clever? He knew they were pantheistic, and they were proudly displaying their pantheon of gods in the hall of the Areopagus. And just in case they miss one, they reserved an empty space for that one, too. So Paul sees this as a great opportunity to speak with authority about the true God that was unknown to them. And from this point on, he develops a biblical worldview for them. Now, it takes less than a minute to read through Luke's account of Paul's Areopagus address. Forty seconds. We We heard our brother John read this morning. But Areopagus addresses were approximately two and a half hours long. So what Luke records in verses 24 to 31 are Paul's major points that he would have taken time to develop in this two and a half hour address. So let's see these points, okay? I'll run through them real quick. Number one, God is the creator of the world and everything in it. He begins with God that's verse 24 God is the lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't live in temples built with hands number 2 God is the god of aseity that means he is self sufficient God is self sufficient he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything he needs no one in fact we're utterly dependent on him he himself gives life and breath and everything else if god were hungry he wouldn't ask you for a hamburger He's got a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. Number three, Paul now turns to anthropology and he insists that all nations descended from one man, verse 26. From there, Paul turns back then to God and he talks about his providential rule over all history, which was designed to lead some to reach out for him and find him, verse 27. Hmm. That sounds familiar. It says that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Next, in uh, number five, God is imminent. Imminent, verse 27, which means that he is personal and caring. He's not indifferent about people. He's, He's not far from each one of us. Now, Paul's discourse on theology and anthropology now allow him, allows him to bring sin into sharper focus. It's idolatry and utterly reprehensible, he says in verse 29. You see, he, he couldn't introduce Jesus and his role as Savior until he establishes the problem of sin. came from one man. We're descended from one man. Therefore, there is a universal problem of sin. Now what? It's okay. God God sends another to take care of the problem. So he has to make clear, you see, the bad news first in order to make clear the good news and how it rescues us. Number six, Paul introduces a biblical view of time, of appointments in verses 30 and 31. Greeks understood time cyclically. It just keeps keeps on going round and round and round. But the Bible shows time to be linear. Mm -hmm. It's linear. There are divine appointments. There was a beginning. This is creation. This is a fixed point in time. From there, all the way up to the time Paul was preaching, is called the past. A long period called the past, which leads up to Paul's present address. And the past, God overlooked the ignorance of men. But now, now in the present, there is a huge change in the way God deals with us. And the change is important in light of a certain future that is also fixed. It will terminate, by the way, with a final judgment. You see how Paul has, has, has led and, and readied his audience for these kinds of concepts. So Paul's now ready to introduce Jesus and the gospel and the resurrection. God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day, an appointment, when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We can thank God for Acts 17 because we also live in a religiously pluralistic and biblically illiterate society. We need to understand that the gospel is not a magical formula. You cannot give elements of the gospel to such people if they don't have a context in which to understand them. So you say, wow, evangelism this way is going to take, well, it's going to take some time. Oh, months. Months, maybe even years. You need to get out of your head this practice of tacking on a 15-minute gospel presentation to the end of some performance or event that has nothing to do with Christianity, as many modern evangelists seem to do all the time. Evangelizing biblically illiterate people takes time. They have to know the biblical worldview if they're going to realize why it was necessary for God to send Jesus. And just to support that, look at verse 22. And this is very, at the very end, it says, some mocked Paul after his address. Others said, well, we'll hear you again, but, but don't call us, we'll call you. In verse 34, Luke tells us, some men... Joined Paul and believed, among them Dionysius, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Huh! Some believed. Now, Luke does not mean, beloved, that these people followed Paul right out of the Areopagus and were converted on the spot. There's no, no hint of any kind of altar call here, just might as well get that out of the way. No. No, the grammar supports a very different scenario. Luke says they first joined Paul and then they believed. So there, there's a lot of time between joining and believing. How much we don't know. The idea is that they became disciples of Paul in the sense of learners. They followed him to the next meeting, and then they followed him to the next one after that, and then several others after that. And no doubt they spoke with him as much as possible between the meetings. Most likely weeks, if not months later, learning from Paul until that one day when they believed. And this is often how it happens. I have to say, I find it refreshing, beloved, that both the sage and Paul are not shy at all to bring up the aspect of God's sovereign rule in their evangelistic messages. Not shy at all. Lots of Christians are weak in the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which is probably why many of them find it offensive. They certainly wouldn't bring it into their evangelism. But not so with Paul in Acts 17. And not so with the sage in Ecclesiastes 3. The message of Ecclesiastes is very much a double-edged sword. There is bad news. There is good news. And the bad news is clearly laid out with the obvious intent to bring a godless individual to the end of his rope where he is then in the best possible position to see clearly the good news. So work with unbelievers who seem genuinely interested in wanting to know about spiritual truths. Work with them. If they are biblically biblically illiterate, and most of them are, then start at the beginning with the fact that there is a God, and then go from there. And be sure at, at some point to talk to them about God's providential rule over history, which is designed to lead some to reach out for him and find him, and many have. Trusting Christ is the only way to live within such divine appointments and find lasting gain and satisfaction. And it is the only way to escape a sure judgment to come for those who decide to go through life without Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And this is one appointment no sane person would ever want to keep. Father, we're grateful for this time together. We're grateful for Christ, for His work in our lives. We're grateful for the Word. We pray, Lord, that that uh, you would be pleased to grant repentance to those who are in earshot of this message, those who live under the sun, but not under God, outside of a relationship with Christ. And we pray that you would bring them ultimately to to the end of their rope, that they may truly see the futility of life, of living it apart from God, who runs uh, and rules all of life, including Satan himself. And that the only way that they are, going to, they are going to be filled, that they will thirst no more, and find the things that they seek, is in a relationship with you through the, the work of Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. And we pray then, O oh God, that uh, in so doing, you would bring glory to yourself, and you would benefit the church greatly. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen and Amen.